Well, today I want to start the message time by talking about football. No, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. It's not all I talk about. I actually, I actually had a line in my sermon about football that I purposely took out this week, all right? So, so there you go. But nevertheless, now I've talked about football, haven't I? So, um, well, we're in, a, we're in a season of Advent, and um, have you ever been excited for something to happen in your life? Maybe it was a sporting event, maybe it was a concert. Maybe it's true love's kiss, um, maybe your wedding day, maybe your wedding night, whoa. Uh, we all get excited about various things that we anticipate happening. We can't wait for this experience, right? Um, I think about, you know, we just had winter break, a little, or Thanksgiving break, and we're ready for school to start, you know, after the kids have been home for a while. And I, there's even that, that line in the song, you know, and mom and dad can hardly wait for what? School to start. Now, for homeschoolers, you're like, come on, man, that's brutal. <laughs> but for us public school parents, it's like, yes, it's starting again, right? Um, so, but I remember, I remember something that Suzanne and I were eagerly awaiting, and it was actually the birth of our firstborn child, Elijah. And we just couldn't wait for the day to roll around. Um, he was our first child, so it's a big deal, right? And he was actually the first grandchild on both sides of the family, which is even a bigger deal, all right? If you're a grandma or grandpa, you know that. Um, so there's a lot that goes into waiting for the arrival of your first child. There's registration that takes place, and you're looking at trying to get stuff set up. There's baby showers that people throw for you. People give you gifts, and where do you put it? And you're setting up the nursery. Uh, we even went to birthing classes where it's like, okay, what to expect? And we read books on the topic, and it was pretty, pretty wild. There's a lot to get ready for. And then um, there's also kind of the gender reveal thing where there's a lot of anticipation. What are you going to have, a boy or a girl? And uh, so back in 2013, I put together this little video clip to show all my friends what we were having. That's when, that's when using the K was cool in 2000, right? So it's a number of years ago. Uh, but we really, you know, there, there was so much excitement building up to it, right? I remember making this in March uh, of that year, and, and Elijah didn't come until August. So there's like months and months of buildup, and all of our family wanted to be there. Um, it's kind of like the can't-miss moment of like the lifetime, it felt like, for my parents and for Suzanne's parents, so they wanted to get there, and so that means they needed to get there early just in case Elijah got there early. Now, the crazy thing is that we lived in a little bit of a small house in Chicago, and Suzanne's due date was in August, and it's hot in Chicago. 
And I just remember people just kind of there and were just all waiting and waiting and waiting for this thing to happen. And they get there early. I remember just being so, just longing for this moment to happen and just exhausted that I was just so bored out of my mind and tired of entertaining people that I had an old tangled up volleyball net in the garage, and I was like, it would be more enjoyable for me to go sit out in the heat and try to untangle that volleyball net than it would be for me to entertain people, right? So I remember sitting out in my, in my backyard trying to untangle a volleyball net, just, just, it was just longing for this moment to appear. And it wasn't, it wasn't all bad. There were good things along the way. We had a due date date uh, where me and Suzanne went out to get ice cream, and it was wonderful. And when Elijah came, it was actually, according to our timetable, it was probably the worst timing ever. Um, it was a long Sunday, and it was a church, a church Sunday, obviously. So we had church in the morning, and we had church in the evening, and I had stuff all afternoon, and then we had stuff later that night. And then um, it was probably about midnight when me and Suzanne were just trying to decide whether or not this is time for us to go into the hospital or not to deliver this baby. And I remember in one of our birthing classes, they said, if you could kind of walk around the block, you're not ready to come in. And so like at midnight, we start walking around the block, and we stop three times. We're like, okay, it's time to go, right? And uh, so then the, the feat of trying to get to the hospital and not hitting any bumps along the road. In Chicago, the bumps are like, there's potholes everywhere, right? And so Suzanne's, Suzanne's like, please don't hit any bumps. I'm like, that's impossible, right? But we get there, and remember, I, I told you that Elijah was born 11 days after the due date he came. So it was a long time of waiting. There's a lot of anticipating and a lot of hope, and really those things kind of go hand in hand, and we find ourselves in a season of Advent, which is uh, from the Latin Adventus, which means coming. It's a term that often refers to the incarnation of Christ, the Messiah of Israel. When is he going to come? When's he going to come to the planet for the first time? But that idea of Advent can also refer to the time of the parousia, which is the Greek word for when Jesus is coming again to this planet. And so Advent is a time of repentance, getting ready for the arrival of Christ, the first time or the second time, and it's a time of great anticipation, awaiting for the the arrival of our blessed Savior. Christ has come, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ has ascended, and Christ will come again. So we're blessed to have rhythms and patterns built into our calendars to remember these weighty matters on a yearly basis. The church has historically set aside four Sundays each year in order to be regularly reminded of the hope and the peace and the love and the joy that Christ alone can bring into our worlds. And so when I think about those categories, I just ask the question, Who could benefit from a little dose of hope these days, right? How about a little bit of peace? Would you like some peace in your household? Anybody in need of some love? Anybody need some joy these days? Yes, we all do, right? These are common needs that are in all of our lives, and thankfully, we can find those needs met in the arrival of Jesus Christ to this earth long, long ago and also in his highly anticipated and much welcomed return at some point in the future, maybe today. So for the next few weeks, we want to take time to remind ourselves of the wonders of his hope and his peace and his love and his joy. And maybe for some of us, it won't be a reminder, but maybe you'll be introduced to these realities Maybe for the first time ever, and I've been praying for you for that. 
this week, and I'll tell you how it's been specifically praying in a moment. I'm desperately praying that all of our eyes will be open to the wonders of these things. And on this first Sunday of Advent, we're going to start by talking about the glorious reality of hope. So let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would add your blessing uh, in this time as I speak. Um, I pray that we would be able to discern your voice in it, myself included. Um, that I'd be able to hear you clearly through the, through the authors of the Bible as you have inspired them to write these words to us. And God, I pray that you would add your blessing to those who read and hear and obey these words. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we want to talk about hope, all right? And I want to ask this massive, massive question. It's kind of our big question of the day. And we're going to take time to define what we mean by the terms in the question and then answer the question, okay? So the big question of the day is, what is the hope that a weary world can rejoice in? What is the hope, we need to define that word hope, that a weary world, what do we mean by weary world, rejoice in? What do we mean by rejoice in? And when we define those terms, we're going to then answer our big question today. But first, a word on the word hope. I hope what I get, or hope I get what I want for Christmas. I hope that my spouse gets me what I want for Christmas. I hope that what I got my spouse is adequate this Christmas and that they don't secretly laugh or cry with their friends when they tell them about what I got them, right? Did this just get really real for like 90% of the room, right? I hope this, I hope that. It's nearly equivalent to I wish this or I wish that. Now that's one way that you can use the word hope. But if you use it that way, it's clearly that you're not thinking like an Old Testament Hebrew or a New Testament writer. When you see the word hope in the Bible, we need to do the hard work of eradicating the thought of wishful thinking from our minds. It's not that. When you see the word hope in the Bible, from now on, my hope is that something happens in your life. I'm using that in the first 21st century version of the word hope. I hope that something happens. I don't know if it's going to happen because I don't know if you're going to apply what you hear today, right? But I do hope that you have ears to hear this morning and that remains to be seen. But after today's teaching, from now on, when you read the word hope in the Bible... It should function in the same way that a well-placed speed bump functions on a residential street. It causes you to slow down and take notice of it. If you just go tearing through a residential street and you're accelerating down the street and fail to notice the bump in the road sign, it can do some damage to your car. And if you see the word hope in the Bible as you're just ripping through Bible reading, and you fail to slow down and take in all that that word hope means in the biblical author's mind, you might accumulate some damage to your life. The word hope is filled with encouragement that you and I need to make it through the years. But if we don't take it in and understand its capability, then we won't benefit from it. So let's talk about hope. What do the biblical authors mean when they use the word hope. And so I'm going to ask the Apostle Peter to speak up for all the biblical authors, because he so often does that, right? He speaks up for all of them. And I'm going to go to 
Peter's epistle and look at what he uses there to define hope. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14, we read this. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason or for the reason for the hope that you have in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Now, in order for us to understand verse 14, it's critical for us to understand those Peter is writing to. And thankfully, he tells us in the very first verse of his epistle, and he says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, in Galatia, in Cappadocia, in Asia, and Bithynia. So Peter is writing to people who were called exiles in the dispersion. The word exile is a rich biblical word that means people who have been deported into a new location to live. And this is something that has happened to them that has been forced upon them by either war or famine or persecution. So Peter is writing to these people who have been scattered, and he says to them, back to our verse, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed and have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So basically what he's saying is, hey, make sure that you honor Christ in the midst of your persecution, and that the word for holy means to set him apart. Now there's a really good chance what Peter is saying is, you are currently suffering in exile, And if not now, you soon will be, but don't fear only those who can kill the body. Even if what you and I humanly consider to be probably the worst thing to happen to us, that is our death, he says you will be blessed. So in order to prepare for that potential or the inevitable, honor Christ. It's the verb form of the word holy. It's written as a command, as an imperative. You must do this. What Peter means is Jesus Christ needs to be so set apart and so lifted up high on the highest pedestal of your heart that even though what you may go through might be the worst case scenario, you will be able to do so with a steady and strong conviction that all of it will be worth it because of the hope that you have. Oh, and by the way, be ready to speak about that hope to anybody who asks you how you're making it through these days. When Peter uses that word hope, he does not mean wishful thinking. Wishful thinking will not sustain you when your life is on the line or when your family's life is on the line. But biblical hope will. Peter uses the Greek word elpis. All peace means a joyful and confident expectation, not wishful, but an expectation of eternal salvation. This isn't the exact opposite of wishful thinking, but it's very, very far removed from it. In fact, I think that if we were to graph on an x-axis the level of certainty in the 21st century of the word hope, 
and then the biblical author's use of the word hope, it wouldn't be comparable at all. So like if we could start the x-axis way over here and we use the 21st century of the version of the word hope, we would say, well, that means like, I hope this happens. I wish it happens. There's a little bit of confidence that maybe it might happen, but we're not sure. But if we take the biblical word hope, el peace, and we use it the way the Bible writers use it, it's not even comparable because on that x-axis, it's like way, way over here. It's not wishful thinking or just a little bit of confidence. It's like, no, this is for certainly going to happen. It's an expectation. It is going to take place. It's, it's certainty. It is a done deal. That's what hope means. So when Paul writes to the Ephesians, he reminds them that once they were without hope. And why were these Ephesians without hope? It's because they were without Christ. Listen to Ephesians 2.12. It says this, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope, no L peace, no certainty, no expectation of great, greater things to come. You had no hope, and you were without God in the world. So Paul is going to say with certainty that if you don't have Christ, then you have no hope. You can hold on to your wishful thinking as much as you want, but you don't have hope. So this is pretty major. We need to figure out how to get Christ, and we'll get to that in a moment, but for now we can move on to what we mean by a weary world, because now we know that biblical hope is only found in Christ, and that means something certain will happen that just hasn't happened yet. So that's what we mean by hope. Now what do we mean by the word weary world, or the phrase weary world? And that reminds me of like one of my favorite Christmas songs, right? A thrill of hope. A weary world rejoices. For yonder breaks a new and a glorious morn. Fall on your knees. Think about this. What a powerful song. You know, it kind of reminds me of that old holy night scene in the Christmas movie Home Alone. You guys watch that one? You watched it yet already this year? We already did, right? Um, but Kevin is kind of getting all prepped and ready to defend his house from robbers. And in a last-ditch effort, he decides to get some divine assistance. And so he goes to a nearby empty kind of church building almost. And as he approaches the building, even from outside of the building, you can hear the faint voices of a children's choir singing this song. And as he opens the door and he makes his way down the aisle, the room is flooded with the sound of the choir. And it's really just kind of an epic scene because Kevin is getting ready for the fight of his life. And he's trying to get all prepped and ready. And he's probably just a little bit weary from the process. A weary world rejoices. What do we mean by that? Well, I think we know what we mean by weary. Anybody weary? Anybody ever experienced weariness in this world? You know, maybe just coming off a holiday weekend with extra family around, you're like, yeah, I know what weary is. <laughs> right? Well, the world is weary. The world is weary. And we know that things are not as they should be. 
It's kind of like the beginning of the Lord of the Rings trilogy where there's a quiet voice that speaks. The world has changed. I feel it in the water. I feel it in the earth. I smell it in the air. Much that once was is lost and none now live who remember it. Well, what went so terribly wrong with this place that has left us in a state of weariness? Well, if you've been around the church for any matter of time, you realize that what went wrong was that sin came into the world and that the wages of sin is death. And Paul tells the Romans this in Romans 5.12. He says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Look at the verse and look at the horrible domino effect of it. Death is spread everywhere. There's death of dreams, death of reputations, death of your ambitions, death of loved ones. I learned of death of, of a young one in a mother's womb this week. It's horrible. This place is so broken. And Paul later expands on this thought, saying that it's not just mankind, but all of the physical creation itself is under a curse. He says in Romans 8.20, For the creation itself was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. The word futility is used to communicate a uselessness, or there's an incapable of producing any type of results. This place just won't get any better without any some sort of redemption or restoration. So there is a weariness that we all feel in our bones, whether you're three or you're 13 or 43 like myself or 93. Anybody older than 93 in here? They really feel it, all right? The, the, the accumulation of all of our sorrows. But the amazing reality is that Paul doesn't just leave us hanging in verse 20 of chapter 8, but he says something amazing next. Look at what he writes next. The very next verse, he says this, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Here we see that word El Peace again, hope. Even in the midst of the futility and the brokenness, hope is interjected. There it is, our word again. And not just, I hope this, or I hope that, or I wish this, or I wish that, but there is a confident certainty that it will be, quote, set free from its bondage to corruption. God says that the creation will be set free. And not only that, it will obtain some freedom. Whatever that is, it sounds really good if you're in bondage. But it will only happen, not if, but since there has been a redemption that has occurred in the past. And it will find its fullest fulfillment at some point in the future. And Paul is going to claim that such an event has occurred. And now we can finally move on to the last word that needs some attention in our big question. We looked at hope, we looked at weary world, and now let's take one minute to unpack what we mean by that word rejoicing. Joy is more of a state of being than it is an emotion. In that way, it's not like the word happy. As Christians, we can experience 
a sense or a feeling of gladness and elation regardless of the circumstances that we find ourselves in because joy is the result of a choice. It is a response to who God is for what he has done and what he has promised to do in the future because we have hope. Having joy and rejoicing is part of the Christian experience because we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. And when he takes up residence in us, one of the things that he brings with him as he unpacks is his joy. So that's why Paul writes about the fruit of the Spirit to the Galatians and then he references joy. And this is what we mean in our sentence that we can have a lasting joy and a sense of satisfaction and a hope that the weary world will finally be set free. So now that we have looked carefully at the contents of our big question and we have defined some important terms, let's now move on to answering the question. What is the hope that a weary world can rejoice in? Well, we can rejoice And we can have positive confidence and certainty and assurance that the Redeemer came. The Redeemer came. In the fullness of time, Jesus came. The worship team read this passage for us in Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, Born of a woman, born under the law, to what? To redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. People, this passage, this passage should bring tears to your eyes with its long-awaited beauty. I want to borrow from another classic Christmas carol, a line. Do you remember that song, O Little Town of Bethlehem? There's a beautiful line. The hopes and fears of all the years are what? Met in thee tonight. This line from a very classic Christmas hymn, O Little Town of Bethlehem, has a fuller context to it. It says this, Yet in the dark street shineth. There is a darkness there, but there's something that's shining into it. It's an everlasting light. And in fact, the hopes and the fears of all the years are met in thee in this moment when Jesus came, when the Redeemer came. The backstory to this, this uh, Christmas carol is really amazing. The author of this hymn was a guy by the name of Philip Brooks. He was born in Boston in 1825. He was educated at Harvard. He was a beloved and respected man, not just because he was six foot eight inches tall, isn't that crazy? But because he had a big heart that cared so well for people young and old alike. He was appointed as a bishop in the Episcopal Church that served the area from Philadelphia to Boston. And people reported that in his office, there were toys everywhere. (laughs) That many children who would come by, they could visit with him. 
And it was said that it was a very familiar sight to see this beloved bishop, this massive, big-hearted, big-shouldered, tall man sitting on the floor playing a game with a group of children with toys. This is who this guy was. And in 1865, put that thought in your mind, what year? 1865, Philip was traveling in the Holy Land in Israel. And the itinerary included a horseback ride from Jerusalem to Bethlehem on Christmas Eve. That's pretty magical, right? And when night had fallen, he was in a field where, according to the tradition, the shepherds heard the angelic announcement of the birth of Jesus. And this realization must have hit him like a speed bump in the road because it caused him to slow down and just take the moment in and observe it and appreciate it. And he did because later on that night, he attended a Christmas Eve service at the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem. And this is what he writes three years later, three years after 1865. He says, I remember, especially on Christmas Eve, when I was standing in the old church in Bethlehem, close to the spot where Jesus was born, when the whole church was ringing hour after hour with the splendid hymns of praise to God, how again and again it seemed as if I could hear voices I knew well telling each other of the wonderful night of the Savior's birth. And so, in 1868, this hymn was born. He wrote this hymn. Now, all of you history buffs out there, What's significant about that time period, especially in American history, especially 1865 when Philip was traveling in the Holy Land? What happened in 1865? The end of the Civil War, right? What a brutal war it was. There was a peace treaty that was signed And all of a sudden, battle-weary veterans from both sides could lay down their arms and they could start their long journey back home with half of the nation lying in ruins. One author writes this, families from the north and the south were decimated by the carnage of the most brutal war America had ever seen. Wives and mothers counted themselves lucky If their husbands and their sons came back lacking an arm or leg or an eye or even just shivering with stress because at least they came back. And into this context, Philip Brooks thinks about the night that Jesus came to this war-torn planet and the humble place to which he came and he writes the line, the hopes And the fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. There's a lot riding on this Jesus guy. Bethlehem indeed was the location where all of heaven's hope came, met, and mingled with all of our fears. And so the Apostle John writes in John 1 John 3, 8, he says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And so all of heaven's hope came embodied in Jesus, and he came here to redeem that which the devil was trying to destroy. And so the hope of heaven and the fear that is experienced by all of us who were under the tyrannical rule of the evil one met in Bethlehem to begin a 33-year-long war that would prove more costly than all the losses on both sides of the Civil War combined because the embodied hope of heaven laid down his life. And Peter says, he ransomed us 
from that futility we're talking about, from our weariness. He ransomed us from our futile ways, inherited from our forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. What the biblical authors are saying to us is the Redeemer who was foretold all the way back from Genesis 3.15 came. The Redeemer that Boaz reflected and Ruth longed to be under the wings of came in the fullness of time. The Redeemer that Job longed to see with his own eyes came. The Redeemer that David desired to please with the words of his mouth and the meditations of his heart came. The Redeemer that Isaiah so often talked about who would be close and near to those who were afflicted and alone, who were deeply despised, that Redeemer came. And the Redeemer that Jeremiah said would plead the cause of those who were held in captivity finally came. Well, who is this masked man? Who is this Redeemer? And the New Testament authors say this. It was Christ. It was Christ who redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. What did they do with Jesus? Ephesians 1.7 says, in him, referring to Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. The author of Hebrews says, he, meaning Jesus, entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of blood and goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. The hope of heaven and the fears of men met in a busted up old stable in Bethlehem because we and all of the creation needed to be released from our fears and our sins and our slavery to the devil. Listen to what Hebrews 2 verses 14 and 15 says. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things that through death, his death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What the biblical authors are saying is critically important for us to hear today. This is where it's going to get really real in a moment, and this is how I've been praying for you over this last week, multiple times just in my office praying that you hear this part of the very end of my message. Because when Jesus came the first time, we just read that he came to destroy and he came to deliver. And the weary world can rejoice in that. And just like when the Redeemer came the first time to destroy and to deliver, when he comes a second time, he is going to do much the same. He is going to finish what he started, and so the hope that the weary world can rejoice in is not that just the Redeemer came, but that the Redeemer is coming again. 
The Redeemer is coming again. And this is something that we can hope in. His return is certain. Jesus himself encouraged the disciples when he says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to myself, that where I am you may also be. This isn't just some wish-filled thinking that Jesus is dispensing out to his disciples in the upper room. This is bedrock certainty. And when he comes the second time, he is either going to, listen, deliver you or destroy you. Listen to these sobering words. And as you do, please know that I've been spending time praying for you this week that it will hit you very, very hard. I have been praying that for some of you, when you hear these words, they will knock you over with an extreme amount of comfort so that you're abounding more and more in thankfulness and gratitude and hope and that you can rejoice throughout through all the duration of your trial-filled life. I've been praying for some of you that when you hear these words that Jesus is coming again, that that just kind of washes over in you and brings a lot of encouragement. And for others of you, I have been praying that these words will hit you hard too. But I've been praying that they will waken you up from your slumber so that you're not caught off guard and blindsided by the onslaught of destruction that will be delivered to you by King Jesus himself when he comes again in all of his glory. So often, I think we fear the wrong thing. People, Satan is not that scary. You don't need to fear him. You don't need to tremble before him. He's actually under the same judgment that you are and that you will receive and he will receive from King Jesus when he comes again. Jesus actually once said, don't fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Well, let me tell you who that is. And know that I've been praying for all of us in this room in one way or the other throughout this week. You better fear God. Listen, the reason Jesus came the first time was to deliver and to destroy. Deliver his people and destroy the works of the devil. And those are his intentions when he comes again. Listen to these words. Paul writes to the Thessalonians. Listen for these two ideas, relief and deliverance and destruction. Listen to these words. God considers it just to repay with affliction, that's destruction, those who afflict you. And to grant relief, there's the deliverance, to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Relief and deliverance or destruction and affliction. That's his intentions when he comes again, just like they were the first time. Well, how is he going to be revealed, Paul? And Paul continues to write about it in a destructive way. Look at these verses. 
How is Jesus going to be revealed? In flaming fire. Inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. There's the destruction, but where's the deliverance? Next verse, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and, who, and to be marveled at among those who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Deliverance and destruction, that's his intentions when he comes back. And there will be a marvelous day that is coming, that will certainly come, where the Redeemer is going to come again, and all the wrongs will be made right. And in this, those of us that know him can have hope. Our deliverance is coming. But there's also destruction that is coming as well. But even now, you can repent and turn and ask him for the deliverance that only he can give. So I want us all to stand, and we're going to sing one final simple Christmas kind of chorus hymn. Speaking about the intrinsic worth of God, as we say, oh, come let us adore him, for you alone are worthy, and will give you all the glory. Well, who is that? Christ the Lord, when he comes again. And then I'm going to give one last final benediction and a time of response for you, whether to just marvel at his greatness or to repent and come asking for his forgiveness even for the first time. So let's sing, O Come, Let Us Adore Him.